This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 11. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of freelance recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Well, hey there. Welcome back, everybody, to the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 11. Yes, we have crossed the threshold of 10, which I found to be a milestone, but 11. We go to 11. Yes, we do. We go one better than 10. I got to tell you, I was so tempted to use a Spinal Tap uh, sample there in the beginning for the whole you know, scene in the movie over the amp that goes to 11, but I thought, you know, Christopher Guest and his legal team are pretty good about getting on people for that kind of a thing. So I just thought I'd skip it. And I'll spare you the English accent. So uh, Jules will probably appreciate that, right, Jules? Of course, the show is brought to you by our friends over at Gear Sluts. Anyhow, here we are, session 11. Today's show, I've got Gabriel Shepard on, who is a Bay Area-based recording engineer, freelance engineer. Of course, as you'll hear in the interview, he had taken some time off from recording, and he is jumping back in and part of his getting back into it is being on the show. So I'm really happy to have Gabe on today. Um, He came by my house. We, uh, my, my kids were off on Friday, so we were hanging out and we made an arrangement with Gabe. We picked him up at the BART station and brought him over to the house and drank coffee. So I'll just tell you right now, you can hear my kids in the background of the interview. And, uh, if you can't great, (laughs) if you can, I apologize ahead of time, but Life gets in the way. In fact, the wife and the kids just left out the door to go to Target. So I thought, I'll jump in and get the uh, podcast done and up for tomorrow, which is today, which is, of course, if you're listening to this, it should be the 15th of February. So hope you all had a good Valentine's Day. Um, So let's see, where are we at? Ah, yes, we are post Grammys. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I, I I can't tell you how many uh, anti-Kanye West posts I read on Facebook after the Grammys. It was unbelievable, of course. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with that situation, uh, Beck, of course, won Album of the Year, and uh, Kanye made a statement after the fact, of, after, of course, rushing the stage, a la Taylor Swift, Beyonce style from the past. And uh, I guess Kanye made a statement to the effect that... Uh, Basically, I'm I'm summing it up. He he didn't he didn't approve. He thought it was uh, an insult to artistry that Beck won, and so <laughs> yeah, what a way to help a guy sell some records. Because I went right over to the Pono Music Store and bought a 96k 24-bit version of the Beck record and started listening to it. And I'm just getting into it, and it's pretty cool. It's a very uh, deep and very layered record. Check it out. Maybe for some of you, may not be for all of you, but uh, I'm enjoying it, and I think you should check it out. By the way, you know, I did, you know, say I was going to give you a follow-up on the Pono player, and I don't want to dedicate an entire show to the thing, but I will say this. Uh, the Pono arrived. I did get the Willie Nelson Special Edition, uh, the Willie Nelson Special Edition version, showed up, and I'll, I'll say this. Uh, this is the only negative thing. I thought it was going to be metallic on the outside, just from a physical standpoint. The description on the Kickstarter campaign made me think, oh, wow, that's going to be like chrome or aluminum or stainless steel or something. And as it turns out, it was plastic that looked like metal. So 
that's my only gripe. And in short, I'll just say that, you know, there's, I've had a few debates with some people. I've had a few discussions with some people about uh, the validity of the whole thing. And quite honestly, at the end of the day, the digital audio converter in this Pono player sounds great. And I would say because of that, even CDs that I rip in and play in the Pono player, whether it's on headphones, on my Audio-Technica um, headphones, or my, my car stereo, I got to say, the thing sounds great. And it sounds smooth, and it's pleasant to listen to. I don't feel fatigued. And I feel that uh, no matter what format I'm listening to, well, you know, let me let me rephrase that. The formats of 16-bit 44.1 and up sound fantastic. So a CD that I would play in my car stereo does not sound as good as that same CD ripped at its native sample and bit rate into the Pono player and played through that same car stereo. I don't know if that makes sense, but... Um, I, just, I think the thing sounds great, and there's a few articles going around and people getting all scientific about it. And, you know, for me, I'm just going to say that it's like wine, man. You know, it's like it's taste. And an A-B test, I don't know, that doesn't do it for me. It's the long-term listening. After about two songs or three songs of MP3s, I start to just tune out and go, you know what, I don't want to listen to this. That same album in at least a 16-bit, 44.1 format. Uh, we'll just assume you know what FLAC is or ALEC, the Apple version of that, or WAV file. It just sounds much better to me. And I it lends itself to li long-term listening. And I found myself making it through entire records and then going, oh, the record's over. Hmm. Okay. Well, that was good. I'll listen to another record. As opposed to getting fidgety and going, oh, well, let's listen to another song. Or I get a little ADD with iPods and, and iPhones when it comes, and Android phones when it comes to low resolution, lossy files. So that's my experience with it. If you want to buy one, great. Uh, I'm not going to get all dogmatic and say, you know, everything's got to be 96K because uh, I don't necessarily think it has to be. And there's some great records on there uh, that you could buy on the Pono Music Store that are 44.1 16-bit. And um, those sound good. And it's also nice to, you know, get some higher resolution stuff uh, like Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I bought that for 10 bucks. It was a great buy. And that album sounds fantastic anyway. So the higher resolution, I can only assume, can only help in that. So there you go. That's my Pono rant. I love it. I'm My concept uh, when I bought it was I'll either get this thing and immediately turn it around and sell it if I don't like it or I'll keep it. And I'm keeping it. So there you go. All right. So enough of that. Um, let's get right into my interview with Gabe Shepard. Once again, Gabe's, uh, Gabe came over to the house, sitting in front of a couple mics in my mix room here at, the, at my house. Kids playing in the living room. So little bit of noise there but uh i think you'll get to i think you'll enjoy the interview awesome that's it uh here's our interview with gabe okay so welcome to my house gabe thank you thanks for mm. the coffee oh my pleasure for the listener i just picked you up at bart and uh after i picked up my kids and we're hanging out drinking coffee because it as we said, it kind of beats the shit out of doing it over Skype. And if <laughs> yeah. we can, you know, do this in person, yeah, all the better. 
I guess we got to initiate the listener as far as uh, your background a little bit without doing a whole biography. Yeah. In short, how many years you've been engineering, recording, being a freelance guy? I started as an intern at Hyde Street Studios in 1995. So this year would be 20 years. Okay. Uh, I went to a school for about seven months or nine months before that. It's the uh, California Recording Institute. Was that the guy that had the balls the spheres, in the picture? Yeah. The, the, the mix by color or vision? Yeah, the mix was represented as a room, and the sounds were represented by spheres. Uh, the higher up in the room they were, the higher the frequency. So kick drums would be at the bottom, vocals would be in the middle, cymbals would be at the top. And the depth of the room was the volume. And he had mock-ups of famous songs, like his favorite songs, like some Pink Floyd stuff. And and he would show it to people, and they would kind of scratch their heads. And he, you know, he fought the Valiant fight. He went and tried to sell it to a lot of people. And that was long enough ago, so it was data gloves and VR goggles was his vision. With regards to that school, wasn't there some embezzling going on? There was. In fact, I was there the day. In fact, I'm the guy that embezzled. <laughs> See these shoes? <laughs> um, I was there cleaning up something or wiring some cables or something, I forget. And I could hear him in the other room screaming at the top of his lungs, screaming at the guy that had stolen his money. He'd try to get a loan for a certain amount of money, probably for his project, his sphere project, the virtual mixer. And the guy tacked on another like $10,000 onto the loan and skimmed it. All of a sudden I could hear the screaming coming from the room like, what is going on over there? Yeah, I ran to a book a few times after that at like AES and stuff. And he worked on that for a long time. Anyway, so I went to that school and learned very basic stuff. Uh, and then went to Hyde Street as an intern in 95 and learned that most of that stuff was uh, wrong. <laughs> like the never never use a, a condenser on a drum kit. And they get to Hyde Street and there's Mark Needham using nothing but condenser microphones on a drum kit. <laughs> <laughs> on, on every drum. But uh, yeah, I mean, I was there for a really long time and I assisted for you were at Hyde Street I was for at Hyde Street for a long time I assisted for Paul Stubblebine and Mark Needham Alex Newport Andy Sneep for the Exodus record the live Exodus record he's a heavy metal guy but there was you know there's a lot of people coming through Hyde Street I you know Needham had anywhere from doing stuff for uh, Chris Isaac when they got kicked out of Coast because uh, Satriani had sometime booked there I think it was him and they had to move to a different studio for a few weeks and I think they ended up going back okay um, I assisted on the cake record for him the prolonging the magic which I ended up I assisted on the mix but I also did some recording I recorded Chuck Prophet's guitars and that and some other people's stuff so I actually have a platinum record at my house for that and then I mixed many years later mixed Make some songs off the record after that, and I have a gold record for that. Hmm. Neither one of those awards have gotten me any work. <laughs> <laughs>
Not in the least. I can see them on the wall and, and go feel that, proud. Yeah, that was cool, I guess. <laughs> but it's funny how little it means, you know. I still get people who, you know, who open up their cake records and go, "Oh, I just opened up my cake record. I looked at your name is in there." <laughs> you know, it's someone I've known for a long time. Yeah, I get that occasionally, but it really hasn't got me any any work. But do you use it? As far as like a website or any kind of promotion? It's on, yeah, it's on the website. It used to be, you know, I used to tell people about it. I haven't really lately discussed it. I would tell a lot of people or kind of promote that, but it never turned into anything. So I never, I just kind of stopped. For some people, I guess it doesn't really mean much, does it? Not really. Like, I mean, now when people go platinum, they're jumping up and down because no hardly anyone goes platinum anymore. Yeah, I think everybody goes like, what, tin or aluminum these days? <laughs> If they're lucky. After that, I kind of busted out of the, the assistant thing and was doing uh, a lot of gigs through Hyde Street, booked through Hyde Street. And I, you know, I just did a, a ton of records. Most of them I can't remember. A lot of them are just those kinds of records that kind of come in and uh, they're either vanity projects or they're projects that come in you never hear of or they didn't release it or they released it, but no one bought it or it's just What's, a ton of those. In those arrangements where uh, you were booked through Hyde Street, were you booked as an independent contractor or? Yeah, I was always, I've never been on the, you know, on the payroll of a studio. It's always been independent contractor. In fact, I think the only two places I can think of that have salary people were Fantasy and uh, 25th Street. Every every other place that I've ever been to is all just independent people coming in. They have a staff person, but even that person, you know, they're not getting a, their Social Security paid or. <laughs> <laughs> they're not saving for retirement. No, there's no 401k or anything in there. So you did the Hyde Street thing as an assistant. You transitioned to doing gigs on your own. In terms of years spent at Hyde Street doing the latter, how long of a run was that? It was fairly long. I mean, I would say it's probably up until a few years ago, I was there a lot. Management changed a couple times. And when the management changed the last time, it just didn't, you know, they just kind of stopped calling me. But for me, I, you know, I felt a little slighted by that for a while, but I think it was probably a really good thing because I felt like I think I was too comfortable there going to some other places and doing the same thing I was doing there putting the mics in the same place on a drum set, different mics, but in the same place and having it sound completely different. Cause for so long I used the same mic in the same place in the same room. And it always sounded kind of the same. And now if I go to 25th street or I've been doing a lot of work over at Decibel in San Francisco and I can do what I do and it sounds completely different and it's great. I love it. Yeah. It's tough when you, you get into that comfort zone into a room like uh, a Hyde Street room where there's a Neve, decent mic selection, right? Yeah. But that's the thing, too, is that it's only Neve. They don't have, they got a couple Avalon outboard and a couple of V76s, but otherwise it's all Neve, which is fine. But when I started getting in other places, I'm like, well, they have Neve here, but they also, there's also some API and there's some GML. And there's some Trident, and there's Day King. That's right. And 25th and Decibel both have um, API 
uh, are they both vision boards? No, the 25th Street's a vision, Decibel's a legacy. And Decibel, that place is like a little gem. Uh, that place is so much fun to record at. It's the old Mobius studio. It's small, but it's it's like eating a piece of, uh, you know, those pieces of gum with the gel stuff in it, like the you bite into it and it's like this burst of flavor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's kind of like, it's a small little place, but he's got a wall full of guitars and basses. He's got a nice upright. He's got a Wolitzer. He's got a set of vibes. He's got guitar amps, a nice uh, Ampeg uh, bass amp. He's got this nice little API that's in good shape. He's got a clasp he just picked up. He's got a fern preamp. He's got a retro channel. He's got a Sontech EQ. Have you ever played with the Sontech EQ? Holy moly. That's a great EQ. It's kind of, it's like a, I think it's kind of kind of like a GML-y, kind of a clean, but boy, that sounds good. And drums. He's got a set of a Rogers kit. So you could show up there with nothing. Yeah. I love that. I just did a session where the bass player and the drummer showed up without instruments. It sounded great. And he's got some other, he's got acrylic kit. Uh, he's got a, a blue Ludwig. Pistolite. And then he's got um, a, this giant orange acrylic kick drum. It's got to be like a 24-inch kick drum. It's huge. Hmm. And I actually used that on Sunday. It sounds great. It's a kind of bouncy, like almost timpani kind of sounding kick kick drum sound. Fair rate over there? He's three fifty a day, non-negotiable, no hourly. Unless you're a buddy of his, then sometimes he'll do a half day or something or work something out. But usually he's three fifty a day. That's it. You go in and do and your he, thing. Yeah, and... he doesn't really have any assistance. I I love going there. It's really great. And the guy who owns this is JJ Weisler. He's like yeah. the nicest person I think I've ever met. Yeah. Super well, I gen- know him, yeah. He's super generous. I don't know him well, but I've known him for a while. He did he came into Broken Radio one time and did a Vic Chestnut record with uh he did the last Vic Chestnut record oh, wow. before Vic Chestnut died. Jonathan Richmond produced JJ was engineering and uh yeah. Very interesting to have Vic Chestnut in, in one studio. I bet. Yeah, I, I saw him at the uh the Noe Valley Ministry or that church that they do live yeah in Noe Valley I saw him there it was funny because the friend that brought me he was like oh you're not gonna like this and then even like halfway through he's like do you want to go I'm like are you kidding me this is insane this guy this guy's incredible like why would I want to leave right now right like it's so I just felt like he was so uh so so genuine and so fascinating kind of nuts and fantastic it's great so you started to stretch out from Hyde Street. Yeah. Yeah, and that felt really good. I mean, I mean that that's just in the, like the last few years. But prior to that, you know, I would do stuff at people's houses sometimes. And I still do that. Not as much uh, friend that I've had for – I assisted on some records for him, uh, Eric Drew Feldman. I assisted on a project for him probably 19 years ago for a Custard record, which is a – Australian band. It turned out he lived half a block from me. So he started giving me rides home. And at that point, I think he was still playing with PJ Harvey. So I'd tell people, oh, yeah, I was just doing this project with, you're like, oh my God, really? I love that guy. He's like, you know, because he played with the Pixies and he played with uh, Captain Beefheart and Perry Ubu. 
Yeah, I've known him a long time. I've done a lot of records with Eric now. Uh, most recently, we did a Matthew Edwards record that John Greenham mastered for us. Shout out to John Greenham. John Greenham. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> My favorite dour Englishman <laughs> next to Alex Newport. <laughs> I guess I think Greenham did some mastering for uh, Alex Newport. And when I, and they both totally loved each other. But they're both that same kind of like, I think it comes from growing up in a foggy, kind of wet, soggy country. <laughs> They're kind of a, a brilliantly uh, pessimistic in a kind of a strange way or something. There's something kind of, it's great. I love John. That's why, uh, one of the reasons I love going to. <laughs> <laughs> the one other really big project that I did with him was the uh, the Frank Black thing. I guess at that point it was Black Francis. Oh, you did with Eric Drew Feldman. Yeah, it was a. Uh, a soundtrack to a silent film. What's that relationship like? Um, I mean, is, is, is Eric in that position of the true producer and you, the, the traditional engineer? Uh, to some degree. I mean, I mean, I've known him long enough so that I can, I can say stuff to him. You know, I can say, Hey, I had this idea and he's totally open to hearing my idea. Like I said, we've I've known him for a really long time, so I, I know what he likes and how he likes things to sound. So that, like, we don't need to talk about that anymore. Like it used to be, I'd work on something for a long time ago. He'd say, "Sounds good, but it sounds a little too nice." <laughs> and uh, all I gotta say is, thank God for the decapitator, because that's yeah. that's my new friend for him, especially. Everything goes through the decapitator: drums, bass. Especially drums and bass. Is it is it like a seasoning? It's just a mild amount or a huge amount. It depends on what it is and how much it needs. But you know, I'll I'll run all the drums through a, a stereo aux channel and Pro Tools, and do like a parallel compression thing on it. But before I hit the compressor, it's the whole drum set gets a little bit of decapitator. And usually, I I use the uh, there's a drum fattener setting. That's a good jumping off point or sometimes you can use there's a like a, a guitar setting in one of the guitar things i forget which one it's like one of the first two on the list and that just that pulls a little more low end i think uh, i think the tape head from massey is like that for me it's the let's kind of remove the sheen off this and sand it down a bit yeah it's kind of kind of a similar thing. The two people that I've worked with in the past, I mean, Eric is certainly th would be the third because I've done a lot of work with him. And I've learned a lot from him about different things, but just like the engineering side between Needham and, and Stubblebine, those two, they come from completely opposite worlds where Stubblebine is more than like the, let's listen to it for a minute and then make some subtle changes. And maybe we'll, we might use a compressor on the bass. Uh, but then we're gonna run this whole drum set into the room and mic the room. Or like he was interested in, he liked things that might be a little bit more blurry and not quite so defined, but you could still hear them and feel them, but it, was, it wasn't an in your face kick drum sound. It was more like a kick drum in a room. Hmm. 
whereas Needham moves the lightest uh, speed of light. He's really fast, and everything gets a compressor. Even when he's tracking, the toms get compressors. Wow. Like that Chris Isaac was, he brought in his racks of stuff, and it was tons and tons of compressors. Really impressive stuff. So I feel like I've really been torn between those two worlds for a long time. Like I think I like things that sound big and warm, but at the same time, they have to sound like things sound today. You know, that kind of a an old school tone. Because a lot of my favorite records are from the '60s and the '70s or the '50s. The kind of people, most people, most people, most of my favorite artists are dead. <laughs> <laughs> but you have to you have to make things sound like they sound today. So you have to. What do you mean by that? Um, uh, more upfront and present and uh, clean. You know, I, I, I'll listen to anything if it's done well. Uh, and I sometimes get a little bit of flack for that because I love Taylor Swift. What's done well for it's that? fantastic. For that thing. Like the production on those records are spect so spectacular, so good. I think that's, um, it's hard for some people, whether you're a music fan or, that has no industry experience or or if you're even if you're a recording engineer it's like i think it's it's a it's a it's a sign of maturity to be able to appreciate something that may not be 100% up your alley yeah. like i don't necessarily will go out and buy the taylor swift record but i'll certainly you know sit down and listen to it and pay attention and learn a few things cuz you know it's being done on a different level. And, it, and it's like that for a lot of pop records. I think um, the Britney Spears song, Toxic, it's like candy, man. <laughs> yeah. It may not be good for you. Well, but the other no. thing that, that fascinates me about those those kinds of records, and this is something I think I struggle with a lot, is to some degree I kind of want my records to sound like that, but I have no idea how to do that. I have <laughs> no idea how to make a record sound like that. And even like, you know, there's, you know, in that pop world, there's, I think a lot of that pop music gets kind of, balled into the same thing but they all sound like if you listen to like a kelly clarkson song versus a taylor swift or, or pink they're very different like taylor swift is more feels more nashville not as compressed whereas the pink records are like verging on the edge of distortion or maybe even a little distorted already because there's so much compression either in the mastering or who knows but i definitely like i feel like when i make something i've I tend to lean more towards the older sound, but then I'm trying to force, it's like forcing, you know, a square peg into a round hole. It's, it's hard sometimes to get that big full sound and have everything be up front and compressed. It, it lends itself yeah. to, to fewer instruments. So if I get tracks that have a lot of, if I get, uh, uh, have to mix a song with more than 40 tracks, I start to get into trouble. Because everything sounds so big and warm and fat that I can't, I don't have no place to put stuff anymore. It's harder to, to wedge that in sometimes. This track I'm doing for this artist from uh, Istanbul, it's, you know, it's like 56 tracks. Yeah. He's done a great job of arranging things, so it makes my job easier. But it's like you're given a room and, well, where are we going to put the couch? And, uh, okay, there's Oh, the another chairs. couch. Oh, oh there's geez. two couches. Well, <laughs> I mean, we have two couches in our living room here, which is <laughs> funny. One one thing that I always analyze, I don't really, I don't know if I struggle with it, but I analyze it is there's the engineers, 
those that listen to the show know I'm a Chad Blake fan, love Chad Blake, but it's not always a good idea to try to emulate those you totally think right. highly of. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's that balance of Chad sounds great. Some of those guys that do those pop type records, those sound great as well. It's like finding your own sound. Then there's that argument of, well, do I need to have a sound or should I let the band be the sound and just try to be the conduit to get the music to the hard drive? Right. I, I think that I've, I tend to be more in the let the band do their sound, but because you hear about those, you know, things where like Rick Rubin might, you know, takes away all of Billy Duffy's guitar pedals for that cult record, the electric, where it's a super dry record. Mm-hmm. And how you read about how much they hated that, how they hated doing that. I think that there's a alternative record. Uh, there's another version of that record out. It's called the Cult Manor Sessions. And it's a complete, it's those same songs, but it's a completely different set of that's production. A, that's interesting. Because then the record they did after that with Bob Rock was like, let's use all the effects now. <laughs> they went completely. And the, But I find that, I find that interesting. But I, I never, like, I, I would never want to do that to a band, like force them into something that they're not. Right. I mean, I know there's people that do that and are highly successful at doing that. Where are you at in terms of, production i mean do you do you produce do you i do sometimes walk that line of yeah engineer producer yeah totally i think you have to in in, in a lot of cases especially if a band you know because they're going to ask you and in, in audio school they said the, you know the the most important thing that you can say is uh, i don't know what do you think like turn it back on them but i always felt like if i have a strong opinion and i tell people this up front when i'm about to work on something with somebody i'll say uh, just so you know, uh, if I have a strong opinion, I will tell you. And I have, I have a lot of ideas, and some of them will be bad, and some will be good. And please tell me if 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 it's bad, tell me you don't want to do it, and I won't. If I, but if I think it, if I think it's good enough to fight for, I'll fight you on it. <laughs> I'll arm wrestle you. No, yeah, I mean we'll I mean, we'll get ugly, but I'll you know I'll fight for something that I think is right. But I also throw a lot of ideas, and some of them will be good, and some won't be, and that's okay. I'm totally okay with you telling me that it's you don't want to do that or you don't like that idea. But what it does is it makes it, and especially with mixing, because people people are weird with. I discovered more, with, most with reverb, where people are like, "Oh, I don't like any reverb. Or, that's too much reverb." I'm like, well, what are you talking about? It sounds great. It's like this beautiful, lush thing we've got going on here, and you want to take the reverb off? Like that doesn't make any sense. There's all this space. We gotta fill that space, man. But you know, I mixed a thing for a guy who was like, I had this great, like, repeating delay with this big reverb because it was just him and an acoustic guitar and like a. I don't think it wasn't even drums or anything. Some some other instrument. I forget what it was. But he's like, yeah, it's too much reverb. I feel like I'm getting a lot. Like, no, it sounds great, man. I, you should play it for some people and see what they think. But he didn't. I don't think he was just... That's a good it's good. Yeah, you should play it for some other people. <laughs> yeah. But that's an interesting thing with an artist because sometimes, well, quite often, I don't think that they can see the forest for the trees. Right. And their reactions to reverb are, you know, oh, that offends their sensibilities, or they're worried about being perceived in a particular way. And yeah. They're, they're not hearing it the way we're hearing it. And 
we don't have that baggage of personally being offended by reverb. Yeah. Well, also, I think a lot of artists, you know, they, some of them have, some artists have a, a kind of a, a picture in their head of how it should sound. And then if you have someone who has a different perspective on it, it might come from a different side and go, well, that's a good idea, but what if it sounded like this? Um, sometimes that's, I think it's hard for people to kind of let go of something so personal, especially if it's a songwriter that is writing something, something happened in their life or you know, if their songs are based off of arguments they had with their wife or whatever, or their husband. Uh, sometimes they, you know, have an idea of how it should sound and when I give them something that doesn't sound like that, <laughs> even if I think it's better than what they're thinking of. When I work on things that, because I get calls sometimes from people who say, I uh, recorded this thing with this guy and uh, he was a real jerk to me because I didn't like what he was doing or I had a bad time with this person. And I have all these tracks, but I don't really like the way they sound. I found that I've, I'm actually pretty good at fixing other people's stuff. Like I, I get more joy out of that sometimes than recording something myself because mm -hmm. I get, I get too tied into what I've already recorded or how it sounds. But if it's somebody else, if something someone else recorded, and even if they screwed it up, I really enjoy fixing those things because I think sometimes if something if something sounds bad, it can be. The problem is that it sounds bad on accident. But if you can make it sound bad on purpose, sometimes it can make more sense. Like if something's distorted, occasionally, you know, I'll just distort it the whole way through. It's because you're not going to be able to get rid of the distortion. But I might, may have, I might be able to make it sound cool if it's always distorted. Uh, I, I enjoy that immensely. Do you ever, um, you ever run into this where you're hired to track something and there's the possibility that you could mix it and you, you like the music and you like the artist, but maybe you realize that your vision and of where it should go and their vision, you know, ahead of time, you're going to clash. So do you ever enjoy just like tracking something and then signing off and sending it off to the, to the guy who's going to mix it or the gal that's going to mix it? Yeah. Sometimes I, it doesn't actually hasn't happened that much. I've had a few things I mean, usually when I when I track something, I, they ask me if I want to mix it, even if someone else has mixed the other tracks. Uh, the one time that that kind of happened, I didn't end up tracking it, but I was working on a project with Eric, and we had done a Christmas record for this band. They were a band that was they were popular, to, had a certain popularity in the '90s, and then they kind of had a decrease in popularity. But it's a band that he'd worked with in the past, and they were kind of gearing up for a new push. And we had done a Christmas record by. We mixed a Christmas record, and then we were we mixed the live record. Excuse me, and then they were going to do a full on regular release. And so we started getting these tracks in, and it was, you know, my computer could barely handle it because I have a laptop that has you know Pro Tools on it. And it was all ninety six k, and it was like, you know, like a hundred tracks. Hardware buffer errors left and, and I, right. Yeah, so I I couldn't even play all the song all the tracks at once. You know, I had to do a submix of the drums and the recording was a little bit suspect, but it was fine. But it turns out this, there's a guy in Austin whose name escapes me who offered to mix the record for free and he had some bigger credits. And so when I heard that first mix that that guy did, cause we weren't mixing the same songs, 
they were sending him other songs. But when I heard his song, his mix, I was like, oh shit, <laughs> that guy's really good. And I, and it turned, it was that same thing. Like, I don't know how to make things sound like that. I have no idea how he did that. <clears throat> it sounded very, that kind of Chris Lord Alge kind of like, uh, gritty compression thing. I mean, no, he doesn't use a ton of compression, or he says he doesn't. But, <laughs> but <laughs> he knows what he really does. But that sound, like the like that Weezer record that he makes, the kind of like up front, kind of round drum sounds, but super loud in your face, but not. I don't know, it's hard to describe. Is that I think it's that slow attack, fast release thing. It's like it's really in your face. And when I heard that, I was like, oh no. There's no way I can't compete with that. Right. That's a that's completely different. And if they like that, there's no way. So we mixed a couple songs, but I was like, I finally told this was with Eric. I finally told Eric. I was like, I think we should just tell them to go fuck themselves because <laughs> there's no way. Because they were kind of giving them a hard time about it. Because Eric was like, well, I spent all this time helping you guys record, and now you're making this record sound like this and I don't agree with this at all. And they were like, well, yeah, but we were trying to, we we're trying to be competitive. So we want our record to sound like this. And I was like, we need to let this one go because I can't make it sound like that. And you don't want it to sound like that. So we should just back off because I don't want to get, I don't want to do a ton of work. I know they don't have a ton of money. So I know they're, and they're getting these guys, this guy for free. I'm not going to do a ton of work and then not get paid for something that they're not going to use and didn't like. That's do you just, find that hard to walk away from a project like that? Incredibly hard. And in fact, I find myself right now mixing a project for a friend of mine that I've known for like 25 years. And the guy that recorded it wanted to mix it. Now I'm on the other side of it. I hear his mixes and I go, that's not right. Mm. <laughs> and the mixes, and I, I kind of have a connection to this to his stuff because I've known him for a really long time. I've done records with his band before and now he's doing a solo record and I I totally get it. I totally get what he's trying to do and, and where he's going and where it should go. And I don't think the guy that recorded it, I think he's too close to it because he played a lot of the music. He played the bass and he played some keyboards. Like he's too close to it, I think. But so yeah, so I've, I've, now I'm on the other side. I'm, I'm the ones taking his mixing project from him. <laughs> But in a kind of a different way, but but yeah. yeah, that's really hard to walk away from something like that. It, it, yeah, I'm on the fence. I guess as I, I think when I was younger, I I really wanted, uh, like, I guess I felt personally offended if I found myself in that position. Like, yeah, oh, you know, it, it, the insecurities start to creep up, and oh man, I'm not good enough, and oh, I got to make this better. And but now, I don't know, man. Maybe. I think I'm coming. I'm personally coming around to a point where I'm like, "Oh, you, you got somebody else you want? You believe in? Great, <laughs> yeah. do it." Yeah, because I don't. I don't. You know, I want to do my job, and I don't want to fight. I want. I want to. Yeah. Well, I feel like too. Like you know, I've basically not completely taken the whole last year off, but I've you've been doing other stuff for the last year, and and I was still doing a little bit of engineering, but not as much. And now that I'm kind of getting jumping back into the pool here. I definitely feel like my perspective is a little bit different and I'm, and I'm totally willing to, you know, someone think if someone thinks they can do a better job and someone, you know, I'm totally like, 
do it. You know, let's talk no about that. My teeth. Why did you take a year off? There was, and that's this last year. Yeah, up. It's just just until recently, right? Um, I had uh, found myself kind of in a decline of work. Like I just was getting less and less work. Found myself uh, really short uh, money wise for a few months in a row. Right. And uh, kind of ran out of people to ask for money from. Like, <laughs> right. You know, I already asked that. Uh, that person already gave me, you know, family members mostly, you know, like though they already. A little bridge in. loan here and there. Yeah. And uh, an opportunity came up to work for a transportation company. And I was, you know, at that point I was fairly desperate. I'm like, what's, I'm going to do that for a while. And it was great. And actually doing both at the same time was really insane. And I didn't sleep a whole lot. But I found myself, uh, like, it was nice to have a little income. (laughs) Funny how that is. (laughs) Funny how that is. But, you know, now, but, you know, but that was, that was really rough on me, like, physically and mentally. It was, it was a lot of hours driving. It was, it was, it was kind of tough. Uh, and it's when, physically tough. It's mentally. Tough. Yeah, it's just it was just just the hours were were kind of nuts, and it just kind of wore me down a little bit. And towards the end there, I was really feeling like uh, I needed to do something different. And, you know, for right now, that something different is something that I used to do. How <laughs> a year ago <laughs> or whatever. Right, right. So, uh, just uh, some personal stuff. So you've got kids. Yes, two. And uh, how old? A nine-year-old girl and a 13-year-old boy. Okay. And I'm sure that everybody's going to be able to hear my kids over your mic (laughs) during this whole interview. Uh, Maybe. maybe. Um, So you've got nine-year-old and 13-year-old. You're married and and your wife, she she works. She used to work. uh, But once we started having kids, especially, especially now, like we live in Oakland and our kids both go to school in Alameda. Okay. Because we used to live in Alameda. Um, it's not that far away, but, you know, it's a lot of driving back and forth. And there isn't a job that she could get that would allow her to do those things or be as involved as she is in their school or in their, you know, helping them through their lives like she wants to help them. There isn't really a job that she can, like a, an actual regular job that would allow her to do those things. Right. And and allow me to do, you know, engineering stuff, which is uh, famously unschedulable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with engineering too, it's like, well, it's, you know, you're in a session and especially session supposed to be from 11 to 6 and now it's 6 o'clock and we're not done yet and you don't stop because, you know, they can't afford to hire these musicians or whatever for another day. So you just got to power through. So that kind of stuff is hard too. Stressful. If, if someone else has another, it has to be somewhere by a certain time and I'm still, I can't leave yet. And, you know, it just, it just causes a lot of issues and complications. So, yeah, being the the sole bread winner is rough when it's uh, just engineering. So... If you don't want to talk about this, this is fine. But you you recently had a car accident. Yes. And uh, you discovered, you know, I'll let you tell it. I mean. Uh, basically, I'm, I'm, I'm anemic. And actually, I just saw the doctor today. And my 
numbers are trending in the right direction. So whatever, I mean, it could have been related because basically I was sitting for 70 hours a week driving, driving special needs kids to school and driving taxi. So between my my many hours of sitting and not getting any exercise and having a questionable diet on top of that it made me pass out behind the wheel of a car on a freeway. <laughs> when that happens, they they don't let you drive until you're medically cleared to drive again because they don't want you to pass out again. Right. Were, and, you know, nothing – I wasn't injured. <clears throat> no one else was injured. But somehow I traveled on a, you know, a busy freeway at 930 in the morning. I traveled at least half a mile completely unconscious and no one was injured. I don't think anyone was injured. Uh, if they were, they weren't seriously injured because I would have heard about that. You woke up. Yeah, I came to, you know, on an overpass with the hood straight up in the air and earbags off and the whole deal. Yeah, but, you know, really disoriented. And I was joking with someone about how, like, a lot of times when people have those kinds of experiences, like, you know, a near, a near quote unquote near death experience, uh, you have this kind of life changing attitude, like, oh my God, I almost died. Now I need to go live life to the fullest and jump out of airplanes and experience life. And But I was unconscious for all that trauma. <laughs> I wasn't, I kind of got, I kind of got uh, screwed out of my epiphany. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't allowed to <laughs> I wasn't allowed to have my my moment, my life-changing moment. Instead, I'm just like, what just happened? <laughs> I just get to I get I get the aftermath, but I don't get the juicy part of it. Wow. But it definitely, but like I said, you know, having having not done the engineering as much and kind of getting that break from it was actually really really interesting. And it, it, my perspective is really different now. Like, I feel like I, I don't think it's specifically because of that accident, but I think it was partially just doing something else for a while. Mm -hmm. One of the things that I've struggled with a lot in the past, and I'm sure that uh, other people have had this problem, where I would have a mix and I would, you know, so I end up doing a lot of mixing at my house on my laptop because people can't afford to do mixing in studios as often as we like. So I find myself mixing at home a lot. And then someone, so then when someone says, oh, well, I'd like to mix in a studio. When I get to that studio now, I'm like, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard for me to work that quickly with that kind of, with the, the money clock ticking behind me. Uh, I found that I way more enjoy the mixing in the vacuum for a large period of time and then sharing that mix with somebody either sitting down with them and listening to them and making tweaks mm -hmm. or just sending them and having them send me notes back and having, having that time to not to listen to something and bounce it and listen to it on my phone in the car or take a walk and listen to it on my earbuds or listen to it, you know, walk over to, you know, to a studio and listen to it on their speakers, just to how people will listen to music, you know, on crappy earbuds and be able to go back to that and pick up exactly where I left off and have nothing sound different. I find that I enjoy that way more than 
that that outweighs the sonic benefits of having the hardware. I did, however, mix a, a record at 25th Street where we, I used Pro Tools and I used the I.O. as inserts. And uh, I did enjoy that, having real compressors and stuff. It requires a facility that has people who are willing to write down settings for you. And let's <laughs> face it, at 25th Street, they are, <laughs> they are, uh, they're really good at that. Yeah. Yeah, and I feel a little guilty when I'm like, Oh yeah, can you document that? Yeah, I don't feel that guilty because I had to do that a bunch. I could do that. I did that a bunch, and no one ever recalled. It is nice when you go to to a facility like Twenty Fifth Street. Props to Twenty Fifth Street and the crew yeah. over there. But uh, it is nice. You just you can. Uh, my experience there, I'm kind of in, in. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I'm used to doing everything on my own. Yeah, and I'm used to not relying on anybody in the studio, and it's only. When I go to Sharkbite, sometimes I'll I'll hire an assistant out of what I get paid, and it, that's helpful. It's helpful on cleanup, somewhat helpful on on setup, uh, and I, I meet some nice up and coming folks. But man, my first experience over at Twenty Fifth Street that was just like, oh no, we'll get that for you. Whoa, I'm used to putting up my own coat. What are you What are you talking about? You know, <laughs> it's, it's yeah. like you really get the full treatment. Yeah, yeah, I feel like I. I probably talk about that place too much, like a, like it's a new a new girlfriend or something. But, <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I've become fairly friendly with everyone that works there, and like like JJ is a super nice person. They're all very nice over there and, and accommodating. And and John Schimpf over there's he helps me out whenever he can. I think he likes to have people who are local in there. Um, the problem now is that he's done too good of a job at promoting the place, and now it's. Right now, it's booked till the end of March. I can't get in. It's hard to get in. Can't get in I know. <laughs> I'm that way with Shark Bite. I'm like, you know, you want that, you want the the places that you spend a lot of time at to succeed. Uh, you know, I want all these studios to succeed because yeah. I don't want to see them disappear. But as soon as they start to succeed, it's like, what do you mean I can't get in? <laughs> I got to wait two months. What do you mean? What? Yeah. Can't you bump somebody? And especially once you start doing some stuff there, it's, you know, I feel like you get really spoiled. Because like I said, you know, like when, when I go there and I, and I set up the microphones that I would usually set up, I mean, the microphones are a little bit different and they have ones that, you know, weren't at Hyde. Just the room alone makes it sound different. But then you have just the quality of how everything's connected over there and how quiet the room is and just everything about it. It's just when I play back stuff from there, I'm just like, wow, just, just it sounds so good. Like, well, how am I going to mix this? <laughs> I'm going to get lost. I'm just going to start daydreaming about how good it sounds. <laughs> <laughs> well, so what I'm curious about, because I haven't experienced this because I've I've been in it about similar time as you, about 20 years, a little over. Um, I haven't had a break. So I don't have that perspective that you had. And I'm curious, like, what's changed for you since taking some time off and doing something else entirely? I think a lot of it, I mean, I still have a little a little bit of it in there, but I definitely feel like there's a little, a little less uh, questioning myself. One of the things that I started doing because I started reading about all these guys that have, you know, they have a, a 10, 11, 76s and they never touch the knobs. Like this is, 
this is the setting, and you just move the patch cords. I started to kind of seek out plugins that I liked the most and would use those as much as possible to try to have some sort of consistency with sound. So I think that was one thing I had I was struggling with for a while was I wasn't very consistent. So some some records would sound really great and some didn't come out so good. <laughs> and trying to figure out why that was and really trying to work on being cons as consistent as possible so that people would have a better idea what to expect. Mm -hmm. The only problem with that is that when you start getting into different genres of music, then the sound has to change. You can't. And so I ended up doing a lot of different kinds of stuff. But but so, have, so have, having that consistency was good, but I found myself questioning myself a lot about the decisions I was making or, or um, feeling like working on something for a while or longer than I would normally and then listening to it later and being disappointed about how it sounded. Like, oh, it didn't sound right. It didn't sound good to me. So now I feel like I, I found that uh, I tend to push things far enough so that when I listen to them now, I think, well, if they don't like that, that's too bad because that that's pretty good, I think. Um, like There's been very few mixes where I've jumped up and down and go, that's amazing. Usually it's like, that's pretty good. <laughs> and, and when I hit pretty good, then that's when I send it to them. Right, because I can't. Well, once because I could, I could work on it for another two hours. But am I going to say I worked on that for two hours longer than I should have? And you're you should pay me for those two hours. I'm like, I just need to send it to them, and if they don't like it, I can change it, or they can have someone else do it, or or they'll like it and it'll be fine. And just to kind of let go of that and not be so hard on myself about it. And and part of that, you know, as part of that's like when you do something for a long time, I feel like you get into these plateaus where you like you I might I might have struggled with something in the past and then I figure it out and then I'll do that for a while and then at some point that won't feel as good to me anymore and then I'll try something different. It might be a different compressor or a different EQ or or um different effects or or I'll try something completely that should be wrong. Uh, uh, I like those things the best, where you try something that doesn't work, but that leads to something that does. And that, and that's, I think, why I like to be by myself for a lot of the time. Because if I feel like if I'm trying something that I think might be wrong, but I want to try it anyway, if the person is sitting behind me, I, even if they don't say anything, I feel like they're glare on burning holes in the back of my neck like uh they're not gonna like this so maybe i should i'll just try it real quick and then i'll but if i'm by myself i might have an ugly reverb on for an hour yeah and then go <clears throat> yeah that's not working or i'll go ah, i'm really digging that i don't know about you but i cannot stand having somebody in the room when i mix from yeah. like from scratch it's 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 rough it's really rough I tell people, you know, if somebody puts up a fight about it, I just say, well, when you go to a restaurant, do you go into the kitchen and watch the chef, you know, cut the, you know, cut all the, do all the slicing and dicing and prepping of all the food? Are you and, sure you want to cut that onion like that? Yeah. Are you really <laughs> going to use that much salt? I don't know, man. I think that's too much salt. Is that a tablespoon or a teaspoon? <laughs> it's like, let me just make, make this meal for you and serve it up. And you tell me if there's too much salt or not. Yeah. End of story. We're not going to get into the minutiae of, ooh, what are you doing there? 
there was a person I worked with in the past and this guy, he's a nice guy. He just, he was just so, he'd sit next to me and go, what are you doing now? What is that? What, what are you doing now? And the people that were at that session to this day, when I see them, they, they show up and they're like, Matt, what are you doing now? I'm, like, <laughs> I'm about to destroy your record. <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I definitely have. I mean, you, you know, the, even being in a studio and mixing something and having someone sit behind you, even if they're not, like I said, they're not saying anything, but I, I know exactly what you're talking about. And, I, and I've, I've had to ask people to leave the room. Just, can you just give me just give me an hour. Why don't you go get some lunch or something? I just need to sit here and stew, stew in this for a little bit to kind of see what what comes out. Um, but now I do that at home with my headphones and my laptop, and nobody bothers. No you. one bothers me, especially yeah. in the, unless unless my kids are home, and then every five minutes I get a tap on the shoulder, or someone starts talking to me. And I have to take my headphones off. It's like, you know, I can't hear you when my headphones are on. <laughs> you know that, right? <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I definitely feel like there's, and I'm totally willing to sacrifice, like I said, the sound of the of the outboard gear for that time by myself at my house with plugins. And there's, you know, like it's, there's plugins like the decapitator or tape warming plugins that can kind of help bring a little bit of that warmth back in. It's never going to be you know, like a Fairchild, but it, it'll kind of be like a Fairchild. Well, unless it's a Fairchild plug-in or... Even then, you know, because at 25th, they got that Fairchild. Yeah. And every time I use it, I'm like, oh my God, this compressor's so good. And then I use the plug-in, I'm like, it's kind of doing the same thing, but the tone isn't there. That tone is just a complex tone that the Fairchild has that the plugin just doesn't quite do but it's still a good plugin still does what it's supposed to do what what plugins are you big on what any particular brands or uh, my favorite plugins ever are any of the sound toys okay i use the decapitator and the echo boy on every single mix i've done in the last three years probably i love them so i have the i got the native suite of the sound toys uh and it's great I what does that it. cost it's like 500 bucks, I think. But it's like 10 plugins or something. It's like the, the Phase Mistress, the, uh, the Tremolator, I think it's called, uh, Filter Freak 1 and 2, um, Decapitator, Echo Boy, Crystallizer. Then you get the uh, uh, the Audio Suite uh, Speed plugin, which is pretty sweet too. You can, with that, that's the one you can use to make the, uh, like the sound of a record stopping the. Oh. Isn't doesn't uh, isn't the Digidesign or Avid plugin uh, which is the one that does it? Is it Verify? I don't know. I one can never figure. Out, yeah, <laughs> some of those plugins I can never figure out. I never figured out some of those. But I love uh, I love the Sound Toy stuff. I love um, I use the CLA Waves eleven seventy six quite a bit. That's a nice compressor. I like the uh, API twenty five hundred. I like the SSL. And the Waves. Yeah. Stuff. Uh, there's a couple plugins that uh, I really love. The uh, the Glue. It's made by a company called Cytomic. I think it's Australian. It's called the Glue? The Glue. It's an SSL type compressor, but it has a side chain and a mix knob on it. But I use that at the end of my vocal chain in like a limiter. I'll have to go one. check that out. It's a great plugin. Uh, my drums, I always use the... 
uh, soft tube FET compressor. It's kind of like an 11, it looks like a hi-fi, like a Pioneer stereo from the 70s. Okay. Um, and uh, it's kind of like 1176, but it has a side chain and a, and a mix knob on it. This is great for me because I don't use any of those plugins. The FET compressor is a fantastic drum, parallel drum compressor because you can roll that side chain up to 200 hertz and you can pin the meter practically. We're talking like, you know, 15, like it's like, and just turn that. Uh, what do I do? I usually leave the ratio where it is, which is somewhere like six to one or something straight up in the air. And I do like a slow attack, fast release, or fast release, slowish attack, or fastish attack, fastish. And then uh, there's a, I think the knob says, and there's no, it's like 11, it's 1176, there's no threshold, it's in and out. And then there's a, um, uh, a, I think it says compress dry or something. And usually I get that around two o'clock and uh, makes the drum sound huge. Huh. I'm going to have to go go and investigate. You should check that one out. That's that's a great. I like the uh, DMG uh, Equality EQ. It's really great. Never used that. Huh. It's fantastic. It's really, it has a, you know, has a, a few different, uh, uh, settings. There's like a digital, digital plus. It's a digital linear and a analog phase and a, some different. Some of them I can't use because of the latency. You can only use them for mastering or something. But or on my system, I can only use them for mastering because <laughs> <laughs> I don't have enough compensation on there. But but uh, that's a really great EQ. Anything FabFilter makes their de that their deesser is the absolute best deesser you'll ever lay your hands on. I'm particularly fond of the Massey DSer. So I haven't used that one, but I, I've used, you know, I used the was using the Renaissance one for a while, but sometimes I had to use two of them. Mm. I tried a bunch of them. I'm trying to think of the other ones. But the FabFilter is something, everything with FabFilter, like their gate is really fantastic. The compressor's fine, it's usable, but the gate, there's something about the release on the gate that's so smooth. Uh, like I've, I've rarely come across a gate that, worked that well so quickly hmm. uh, but the deesser has a great little uh, filter that you can move the left and right knobs but within the space where you move the knobs there's a it glows where the sibilance is so you don't have to guess you can see it uh, and it sounds fantastic well, I like that it's hmm. so easy to use and sounds so good uh, I would never use any other DSer ever. I'd hear, say that's you, a... You hear that fab filter? Hear that fab filter? <laughs> Gabe needs an endorsement. <laughs> Give him some stuff. Yeah, and I usually use like Altiverb. I have the uh, Bracasti M7 impulse responses loaded into my Altiverb. So I use those a lot. I keep wanting to buy Altiverb, but I just, I keep putting it off. It's a good reverb. Actually, the reverb, uh, I was <clears> at, working for a guy who had it uh, I don't have it, so I don't use it, but uh, the Ron Papen reverb is a gorgeous sounding reverb. Never heard of that. Uh, it The presets are a little bit sometimes hard to understand. Like they don't, some of them say like, you know, snare hall or, but some of them have weird names. You can't really tell what they are, but that's a, a beautiful sounding reverb. I'll have to check that out. Yeah. See, now I have this whole list of stuff. It's gonna, I'm <laughs> I know. Gonna go and I, should, I, should make, I should make myself a list on my uh, my website so I can have a. I was just thinking about doing that, to like like a plugin of the day. Yeah, 
Gabe's picks. Gabe's favorite plugins are. <laughs> but I find that but I find those all those the combination of those plugins I say gives me some consistency and I'm comfortable with them and I know I know how to use them. Sometimes you pull up a plugin, you're like start turning stuff, I'm like, I'm not really sure what's going on here. Or why is this not working like it should? Or uh, so I like things that work immediately that I either already know how to use or are simple to use. Yeah. Well, there's something to be said for, doesn't matter if it's hardware or software, I think, you know, knowing the tools. Wow, you use just a ton of stuff that I don't use, which I love. Like, you didn't mention any, like, I use, like, McDSP, Slate, Universal Audio, Massey. I like the Universal Audio stuff. I love their Studer plugin. That's like a little magic, a little bit of magic there that they got going on. That's a spectacular little little plug in there. I'm a fan, but I'm also biased because I'm also on their, you know, one of the UA artists. So ah, yeah, I was. I've been thinking about <clears throat> jumping into the the UA plugin thing. I, I can't afford it at the moment. You hear that UA? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Gabe but, needs some help. <laughs> Erica, do you hear that? Uh, but yeah, they've. They have some really nice plugins. I like their their compressors are really that actually their Fairchild is really nice. Yeah, when I said Fairchild, see that's what I think of. Yeah. I don't I don't use any wave stuff. Because so. I have the, the Puig child. It's you know, it's fine. It does a good job. But the UA one sounds way better. I'm a fan. Um but there's something else that you oh uh Slate? Let's say I haven't used much Slate stuff, but I heard their uh their tape stuff is their tape emulation is really good. And That's the, the one thing of his I, I don't have. Um, the compressor. Well, it's actually there's a couple things I don't have. I'd tell you what I'm big on with Slate is uh, trigger the drum sampling I've or heard the that. drum triggering yeah, yeah. thing because it's just you know you get in tracks from people that are recorded in subpar situations and yeah. it really can make the difference in yeah. something really good and something just okay. Yeah. And when you, I find that I, I end up using the Chris Lord Algae uh, drum pack with that. And actually, there's the new Blackbird drum pack. I almost bought it today on an impulse, and I was like, <laughs> "Let me get through this thing that I'm working on." And it, adhere to my own advice that buying a piece of whatever it is, software or hardware, is not going to change the outcome of your life. Yeah, it's like when I, when I can allocate some money towards that, I'll go for that. Yeah. But. Anyways, it's it's a time saver in a big way just yeah. because it, it works quickly. I don't have to go in and like sound replacer from the past. Yeah. I don't have to go in and realign everything to yeah. make sure it worked. Yeah. I used to have to do that. Just sit there and listen to the track and see where it didn't trigger the drum. <laughs> yeah. There's a little bit of tr like just blind trust that I have with when it when it comes to slate and trigger and just yeah. it, it it does the job for me. Okay, enough gear talk. Yes. We could we could do that all, yeah. all day. Um <laughs> you've heard a few podcasts now. Um my favorite thing to talk about is just um I don't want to add to it, um mistakes. And uh, victories. Let's talk about some mistakes that stand out in your mind that you have benef benefited from with a little hindsight to yeah. go, oh, yeah, I shouldn't have done that. And here's why or here's what I learned out of that situation. Yeah. Well, the one thing I, I can think of immediately is I did. So my friend Eric, his wife 
was one of the personal assistants to Warren Hellman, the guy who put on the Harley Strictly Bluegrass Festival. And he was in a band called the Wranglers. Uh, and Eric's wife was the bass player in the band, uh, easily the most experienced musician in the band. Um, and then Warren played banjo because he had played banjo as a young man and then stopped. And then as an older man, after he had made his his money, he decided to pick up the banjo again. And so he went to this guy to take lessons. And so some of the other people who were taking lessons, they ended up performing a band called the Wranglers. And they were kind of not bluegrassy, but more like old timey, like Appalachian music sort of. And we had done, we did one record at Hyde Street uh, and it came out okay. It was a lot of editing and everyone was in, you know, in a horseshoe shape. It was okay. Then we went to make a second one and we were more and more careful uh, and things were sounding pretty good. And then I said, hey, these mixes are sounding pretty good. This might be one we might want to mix in the studio instead of doing it in the box. And so we went in for like a week at High Street and tried to mix this record. Uh, and the, so the second one had Jimmy Dale Gilmore singing uh, from, uh, from Texas there. And my regret is that it was actually sounding better in the box and ended up sounding on the console because we had spent so much time like nitpicking little things that when we got to the studio, a lot of that stuff didn't translate or make it through because we were using a different compressor now all of a sudden or like trying to use outboard stuff instead of just the plugins. And, and that kind of goes back to where I was talking about how, I, you know, trying to trying to be true to how I know I can work and have things come out in, in a way that other people will think is good too. But like having that kind of like, you know, uh, all, all I needed to do was just keep mixing in the box and it would have sounded great. But instead there was, there was one mix in particular where the bass was just too big and the guy that mastered it, whose name I can't remember, he did a fine job mastering, but that one song in particular, he cut out a bunch of low end. It kind of lost the song for me like it didn't mean the same thing anymore so so now I, now i would what i learned from that was trusting myself trusting my process and not going too far away from that process unless it needs to be done or if the client insists on it but i would rather stick to what i know i can do well process is pretty important um so now that you know that and you know like after we've been doing it in a while we get to this point where we're like okay if I want to get a good result, this is the path. I, this is the studio I use or the type of studio I use and the mics and the setup and whatever, the mix in the box or whatever. When does it make sense to you to veer from that process with that knowledge that you have an appreciation for the process you, or your your process? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. I've, I think it would have, to, I'd, if I were, like in the past, I would just veer from it and then it would, something bad would happen or it wouldn't be as what I wanted it to be. But now I would think I would, if I did veer, it would be with a little more apprehension. Uh, it might even come with some disclaimers. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, because, because I know what happens when I veer from the, pro from the process. And, when, and so I'd rather not. If I had to, you know, I'd suck it up and do it, you know, and just say, okay, well, this is, this is where I am with it now. You know, but in, in part of the disclaimer thing would be, you know, we can do that. We can veer from what I'm 
know I can do well. If we do that, we might, we will have to come back here to do that, to make changes. And so I'm actually doing a project right now where we wanted, I was like, it, it started with a sample rate. I was like, do you want to do 2496? Because if we do, I can't work on this at home. Why not? Because we get to a certain, past a certain track count and my computer just can't, uh-huh. can't hang. It's like, we can do 96. If we're going to do that, we have to come back here to do uh, mixes. And if we veer from that, then we need to downsample so I can actually work on it at home. He was like, let's just do 96. So, you know, to kind of uh, warn the client of the possible pitfalls. And I find myself actually doing that a lot because of people, because the, the, the thing to do now is to do your basics in a studio and then take it somewhere else, take it home to do overdubs or editing or whatever. So that's one of the very first things when someone walks into the studio, I find the person who's in charge and say, what sample rate do you want to go at? And they have, and I say, well, and they're like, well, I don't know. Uh, what do you think? And I was like, well, what's happening to it after this? Where is it going? Is it staying here? Is it going to my house? Is it going to your house? If it's going to your house, do you have an inbox? Can you do 96K at your house? Um, and just kind of trying to figure, because after years of, or, you know, so th- also that way I don't get a call, you know, two days later saying, hey, man, I tried to open these up on my on my uh, inbox too. And uh, I've got Pro Tools 6. It's, yeah, I got yeah, <laughs> Pro Tools 6. And this is an opening. Like how, you know, so I find myself, I learn to ask all the questions right up front. Where is this going and what's happening to this? And that will determine the sample rate or it might determine, you know, how well I label the tracks or it might determine, you know, how I set the session up. And usually I set the session up so I can, you know, my workflow tends to be so that I can go backwards. Lots of playlists, saving as not painting myself into a corner so that I can go backwards if I need to. So that once, when, so when that person says, yeah, I like that, but it really sounded good about half hour ago. <laughs> and, but didn't be able to bring that up that half hour ago thing up instantly. Yeah. It's, it's Clients extremely starting, important to me. They're really, the pro tools generation is right, is happening right now, or it's been happening for a little while, I think. And, the expectations of recallability and, oh, you mean you don't have that? What happened? <laughs> yeah. I had a client um, that I'd never met. We talked on the phone. He was putting together musicians he didn't know that well. He was booking a very short amount of time to track. I wasn't going to mix. And he said, well, what do you think about, what if we did this on tape? And I just said, you know what? There is just uh, too many variables in this equation that I feel comfortable doing it on tape yeah. and giving you satisfactory results because you want to do a large number of songs. I don't know what your workflow or what your expectations are, but I talked them out of tape. I just said, look, you don't know these guys. You don't know me. I don't know you. Yeah. Let's try to, let's try to go with a few things, at least in my camp in the recording world that, um, I know that I can count on and deal with whatever variables and adversity we encounter. Yeah. And uh, he was like, all right, I trust that. All right. You know, I, I explained it well to him and he respected that and we didn't do tape. And as it was playing back, he was just like, 
This is awesome. This sounds awesome. I, I rarely get people asking for tape, but when they do, I often try to talk them out of it. I feel like people get, I feel like sometimes people get too caught up in what you're recording on. And I feel like the musicianship today isn't quite what it was in the heyday of tape. And so having a band, I mean, I do come across bands where the players are playing and I'm just sitting there like, oh my God, these guys are insane. I can't believe how good these guys are. But more often than not, I'm going, ooh, ah, ooh, I'm gonna have to fix that. Or so I try not. I don't like to get caught up in in the medium, and, or you know, some people are really militant about tape or or Pro Tools. But yeah, but if I, you know, if I say say to someone, well, you can get tape, but it's 16 minutes for 350 bucks. That 350 bucks can buy you like six terabytes. <laughs> you could put 600 records on these. You wanted to. We can just, get a couple drives, one for one to write on, one to back up to, and and one to throw on the ground, right? <laughs> for that kind of money. Uh, I'm reading Glenn Johns's book right now, and it's pretty fascinating to say the least. And he talks about Jimmy Page coming at him and saying, "I have this new band, Led Zeppelin. Um, can can we book some time?" and basically talks about how although he's credited on the record he's just like you know what i set up the mics for that record for that first zeppelin record and those guys just did what they did jimmy rehearsed yeah. the hell out of it and it sounds like it did because of i'm paraphrasing he he essentially just with regards to musicianship and and people that have rehearsed he said jimmy just totally got it together came to the studio they laid it down and you hear the result on Zeppelin 1. And obviously that was the tape. If the musicianship was at that level, at least in our area here, I think I'd feel a little more comfortable going to tape. But I don't want, you know, people doing half-ass yeah. performances and then coming in and going, can you can you fix that? Can you nudge that a bit? Yeah. No, it's on tape. Yeah. I don't want to nudge Well, that, that's the other thing too, is that one thing, the one thing I have done more often than not uh, especially with uh, Mark Kozlik is doing, um, you get a one reel of tape and then you do three takes of the song and transfer it to Pro Tools and then go to the next song and do record over those takes with three new takes of a different song. And some people are cool with that and some people are totally crazy yeah. about not doing that. But I think it that actually sounds really, I think that's a great compromise because you get, some of that sound off the tape, but you also get the flexibility of the editing and, and looping and tuning or whatever else needs to get done. I think that, I mean, obviously the there's the danes of pitfalls of Pro Tools is the editing and the fixing. And That is a good compromise, running the songs to tape. And I don't know, I, I, I started on tape and then I got out of it. Yeah, me too. And, I'm, and I just don't yeah. look back. I just don't care. And yeah. it doesn't matter to me anymore. It's a, yeah. it's a big pain in the ass for me. That's what I, that's what I was, you know. That's, I don't like to get caught up in which microphone are you using, and you know, part, I mean, part of me, part of me doesn't really care. Like I wish sometimes I had less to work with, because I think that might be a little more interesting. But the problem is that the client isn't always interested in that. You know what I mean? Like, so if I don't put Tom mics up, and then we're mixing, hey, can you turn that Tom up a little bit? Like, uh, no, man. Remember, we didn't put Tom mics up, <laughs> you know? But that would be really fun to do something where I only had eight tracks to deal with. 
That might be an interesting You would exercise. have liked the record I just worked on, Span Americana Social Club. Um, so I did three records. This is my third record with him. And basically took everything that I learned from the first two records and applied it to this one in the tracking. Um, everything was, for the most part, cut live, with the exception of a few guest solos. But um, I made it sound as good as I possibly could with the with the faders and Pro Tools at zero and or not you know whatever Unity. I'm going to mix it, and I think I'm going to have a real easy time mixing it because I <laughs> yeah. made a lot of decisions right then and there. Um, but just kind of touching back on what you were talking about about tape and dogma around that, I found that and and getting caught up in you know what microphone and I feel like um, for me these days it's more important to. Uh, get the flow of the session happening and get everybody comfortable so that it sounds good. The headphones, there's no issues. And when they come in the control room, it's it's just everything, just e easy. Make yeah. everything easy for everybody. Yeah. And then when, when you do that, then that's when really important things start to happen on the musician side. Yeah, to to incite some inspiration. And I think I think a lot of times that you know when you're in a studio. Just the littlest thing can, you know, if the headphones, like you said, the headphones aren't right, it really throws people sometimes, like to the point where, you know, no one's playing right or people are just getting frustrated because they can't hear themselves enough or... Yeah, really throw, it stops everything. Yeah. And so, the, I mean, and, you know, uh, both the two places I work now, both, I mean, uh, 25th has the... the uh, what are they called? The uh, the private queue. Oh, the private queue. That's right. And then those are real high end. Yeah, yeah. And they sound you know they're really flexible and the connectors are great. This little locking Elko things really great. Um, and then Dustbell's got the I think it's the AVM. The it's, they have little Ethernet cables and they have little buttons. They're like sixteen channels and they have like little interrogate buttons for each channel and then you can change the panning and the volume for each of those channels. Yeah. Um, it's got this kind of crappy Ethernet cable connector, which, you know, they always, little tabs always break and the Ethernet thing pops out. But but just having that kind of flexibility uh, in the headphones, it's amazing how, how much smoother things go when the person who's sitting there can tweak their own mix i'm not hearing enough drums bink <laughs> you know done i don't have to do anything it's really great i know i asked this of everybody well actually we didn't talk about victories oh victories give me some victories um hmm it's easier to remember the bad things than it is to remember the good things <laughs> <laughs> i don't know i feel like i think there's been a quite a, a lot of victories i mean they, they feel victorious when they're when they happen Sometimes that nothing happens after the, you know, just not much follow through or whatever. But the victories aren't as much of a learning experience or compared to the, the mistakes? Probably. I think that, uh, yeah, the, the victories are hard to remember, but I definitely feel like I have, I've had a few projects where I, after the fact, I felt really good about. I mean, like I said, most of the stuff that I end up doing, I've, I get to the point where I say that's pretty good and then move on. <laughs> but there's certainly been a few where I'm like, I'm like, wow, that's, that, that sounds really good. And some of those were done really quickly. Like I didn't have a whole lot of time to make them sound good. Uh, 
and just have that kind of stream of consciousness, like super quick instinctual stuff and having it sound way better than if I had spent six hours turning a knob an eighth of an inch back and forth. <laughs> uh, and having the ones where, you know, it, everything just kind of... Actually, the Matthew Edwards record was one of those where Matthew Edwards is a he's a British guy and he wanted Eric to... I think he actually used the word produce, but Eric was like, well, you've already recorded everything. So I'll, I can, you know, Gabe and I will mix it, but I don't know if it's called producing necessarily for him anyway. He likes to, he likes to tweak stuff and have people sing harmonies or triple vocals or he likes, the, he has a good sense of arrangement and, and things that he likes and vocal arrangements and stuff and whatever. But so he, so Matthew Edwards sent us all these songs and he basically said, do whatever you want. Take stuff out, add stuff, whatever you want to do, do. And having that freedom was so much fun. You know, he had this song where it was, he had those horns on it and the horns just didn't quite, they weren't quite right or, or they weren't playing quite the notes that Eric thought they should be playing or whatever. And so we just took them out. So that kind of, that was really fun. And then the record ended up sounding pretty good. That's <laughs> as good as it gets for me, but. How but, does that work with you and Eric mixing? Like, what's Eric's role in that? Uh, it's kind of like, like I'll I will sit down, and uh, you know he'll go make some tea or something, or some coffee or make lunch or something, and I'll just sit there and I'll kind of get it in shape. You know, if I need to replace a kick drum, do that. If I need to, uh, you know, just get all the routing straightened out and get things where I think they should be or close to where they should be. And then he'll come in and he'll say, on that downbeat on the last chorus, right before, let's take the drums out. Um, or he'll say, uh, the drums, I'm not quite getting the, the drums enough. Or or the drums sound too nice. Or, I don't know, the bass tone isn't really doing it for me. So he'll essentially produce the mix. Yeah. But in a but in a fairly gentle way, you know. Like I said, I've been working with him for a long time, so I kind of have an idea of what he likes, and so I can get pretty close to what he wants. But it's, it's the stuff like what's, especially with the Matthew Edwards, where he wasn't involved in the tracking, so he couldn't make those suggestions while they were happening. But we could do things, you know. Sometimes sometimes they'll ask me to do something where I have to go. I think I can do that. But I might have to take that fill from this other take that they're not using that's in the session, and we'll see if that fits in there. Sometimes you have to get a little, a little creative trying to realize someone else's vision. Uh, and if that means cutting something up and not being afraid to do the work. I find that a lot of times I get sessions where there's a lot of timing issues or tuning issues. And... Uh, you know, it might take me an hour and a half to fix those, but I know that it has to be done. Like, I, you got to put the work in, because because if, if I I can make it sound as good as I as I possibly can, but if I play it for my wife, she's gonna go. This band sounds a little off. <laughs> it's like that's not what I'm playing it for you. 
but thanks. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> you know, as so someone who's doesn't really care how it sounds, but more about whether or not the song works and if the timing is off or the drummer's, you know, not doing the right thing or whatever, who cares how it sounds? It needs to sound like a band. It needs to work internally. Yeah, it needs to work musically. It needs to work mathematically. <laughs> so if it means me having, you know, because I've had those where I've had to move every single drum. And then once you move every drum, then you have to build up from the bottom. You got to move all the bass notes and then you got to start moving guitars. And What's your, um, what's your plan to get back in? Uh, I'm not exactly sure yet. I know that, um, to get, and just to clarify, just to get back into recording, cause you've been off and now you're kind of diving back in and yeah. Well, I found that there are some people who, uh, who I had been working with in the last off and on for the last year who now I can say, oh, by the way, I'm not just available on weekends. Now I can work whenever. And so some of those people I'm starting to actually kind of do some more work with. And, um, I have some new people. And actually, JJ at Decibel was sometimes tries to give me work, but I, in the past I couldn't have done it uh, on the weekdays or you know the schedule was a little more difficult. So now my scheduling is a little bit easier, and you know picked up a couple new new clients uh, just from working at his place, just because he knows a ton of people. And he's got a couple other. He's got the I don't know how to pronounce their name, the Jay and and Ian Pacelli. Oh, the Polichis. The Polici. Yeah. Well, the Polici. In fact, I was emailing with Jay Polici today about um, having him on the show. Yeah, they uh, they both work over there too. They also work at New New Improved, uh, Eli Cruz's place. But since Eli's on the East Coast, yeah, I guess Ian and Jay are they still at Tiny Telephone too? They are to some degree. I don't think at the frequency they're at. Yeah, but I know that uh, I think it's when JJ doesn't want to work. It's mostly the three of us who take up the slack now. Really? There. Because he just sent out an email chain last night asking about quick clips. <laughs> uh, and it was to the three of us. So I think we're his stable right now. Where's his place located? 29th and Sanchez. On Sanchez at 29th. Wow, that's out there. Yeah. It's an interesting neighborhood. It's very, very um, residential. residential. Yeah. It's like a dry clean place and a Chinese place next door and a little corner store across the street. Um, but it's close to, it's close to, you know, I can walk there from the 24th Street BART station and there's the J Church is a block away. Hmm. So it's not hard, it's not hard to get to, but it is kind of out in the boondocks. I got to get you over to Shark Bite. I've been there, I've only, I've recorded there once. I recorded Zigaboo, Modaliste over there. When? Long time ago? Long time ago seven years I, I went to a christmas party over there when they had their mix room up that was a while ago that was the last time i was there and so i recorded zigaboo before that okay there because his rehearsal space is in the same building oh at jack london rehearsal yeah yeah or it was i don't know if it still is but i think it i think it's where he was rehearsing and he ran into somebody over there so he he does stuff over there sometimes thinking about doing um roundtable discussion for the show and getting Ryan from Sharkbite and JJ and all the other studio and John Vanderslice and get everybody together for kind of a summit to show to discuss. Yeah. What what's the state of the what's the state of the union guys? Where are we at? Here's an idea for you. That could be a good uh 
live show. That could be a good live show. Could have a, a banquet table with microphones and have an audience. Huh. That would be fascinating. <laughs> That's a good idea. Let me uh, ask you some uh, with regards to getting back in and making it work financially. Yeah. That's where I'm not too sure exactly. Uh, I mean, I, th I feel like I've made some some other connections that I didn't have before, just as far as, you know, these new studios that I've been working at and getting some freelance work from both of those places, more from Decibel than from 25th, but, and just trying to kind of be more consistent and maybe, maybe more careful about what I end up working on and saying no to stuff that I don't think is going to work for me or think things that I might, you know, not taking projects that, so what someone says, I have a thousand dollars in 10 songs. You know, I'm like, nope. Craigslist.org. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Just search for recording and you'll find someone. Uh, but being a little more uh, particular about what I, what I take on and making sure that I'm paid for it. And, you know, Absolutely. I've always had, I've always had a rate that I give people. And then I have a bro rate for people that I've known for a long time, especially. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm willing to negotiate to a certain degree, but, you know, trying to, there's definitely a basement I won't go below. Uh, and if they can't afford it, you know, either A, get to find some money somewhere because it's out there. You can find some money. You, know, you can find a little bit of money. It doesn't be a ton. Or find someone else. So trying to, basically trying to, I, wanted, I would love to raise the, the, the quality of, of projects and work on more serious projects that might actually be heard by people, by people who are serious about what they're doing and have a plan for it afterwards mm -hmm. instead of sitting there scratching their head wondering what they should do with this record they just made. You know, I'll just put it up on Bandcamp or does that, uh, I have a friend in, in uh, Marin, an old record producer guy who's who always quotes this uh onion headline where it was uh Akron ban gets visitor to website <laughs> which i i, I requote people all the time because it's it's so true like and that was for a long time it was a big thing like oh, i'm gonna get this i'm just gonna put it up online and it's just gonna money will just sort of flow oh, in yeah but if no one knows to go there and then you get people like colby calais who kind of come out of nowhere who, you know, oh, she got signed because, you know, she put something up on YouTube or she got discovered online. And then you kind of look a little deeper and her dad was Ken Calais, who worked on Tusk. <laughs> you know, so it wasn't a complete accident that she got discovered. <laughs> right. So that, that, that's, a, that's a tough one for bands, I'm sure, but. But to have, yeah, so, you know, I, 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 my website hasn't been updated in a year, so I'm, I'm putting some stuff together. So you're going to do that? There. Totally. I'm, I'm because probably going to do that tonight. Yeah, I would do fact. that because, you know, after this goes up, people are going to go and look <laughs> at it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I'm. So there's have, pressure. I have a stuff, a bunch of stuff written. I just need to publish it. Uh, but like I said, I have some other ideas about just trying to get some blog traffic that might help a little bit. You know, it's, it's hard to know, you know, so much of it's word of mouth, you know, and so a lot of the, uh, your other episodes I listen to, and they all say the same thing, which is stuff I already knew, but it's all, a lot of it's word of mouth. But I think 
hopefully raising the bar on some of the projects and having them be a little bit more uh, visible to people and having and doing a better job and not not straying from my process hopefully will bring some better results. Yeah, it's not only word of mouth, but doing, you know, trying to kick ass on a session. I, I really worked my ass off these last few days at the, this Americana Social Club session, and I feel that that pays off. I feel that those guys appreciate it. And I know that I did a session the day before I started that run that was thrown together at the last minute, and nobody had any expectations. And surprisingly, um, it's for this uh, this woman named uh, Eleanor Fye, we were doing this session that she put together. And all of us were strangers, and when we walked out of there, we were cheering, you know, in victory that we just recorded 10 songs in a day from top to bottom. And uh, lo and behold, uh, one of the guys in the band sent me a message. We became, you know, you, you do a session. It's interesting, you know, when you, you do a session with somebody like, I'm kind of slow to accept new friends on Facebook because it's just, you know, it's like, I don't know you. Yeah. Why, why, I don't, yeah. I'm not going to be friends with somebody I've never seen face to face. But when you spend a, even a day with somebody hardcore in, in a studio, you kind of bond. Yeah. And uh, this guitar player um, friended me and immediately was just like, what are you doing in June? I got a project. Yeah. You know, and this is, you know, it's February and he's yeah. already asked me about June. And it's like, yeah, yeah that's awesome. We yeah. had a kick-ass time and that in itself sells itself. Yeah. Well, I think that, I think too, you know, I, I find myself, um, uh, you know, generally when I end up working with someone in the studio, uh, you know, I like to, joke around i like to have a good time i don't like to be too serious about i mean i'm serious about what i'm doing as far as like the recording part but i like to have a, a fair amount of levity in the studio and not be too too serious about what's going on uh sometimes it can be a little intense and not as much fun and when you're done you don't have that feeling like wow that was really great um so the last, especially the last few sessions that I've done, I've really tried to, you know, be extra nice and try to do as the absolute best job that I can. If it means moving the microphone an inch and having to do that three or four times, I'm totally willing to do that to kind of just satisfy somebody's sound. Yeah, request. just to really push as much as I can uh, the envelope of how things sound and really trying to listen as 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 much as I can to just to kind of you know not rest on any laurels or really trying to push myself to make things sound like trying different microphones like I'll, I just started using uh, Cole's ribbon mics as overheads I mean you got to add a bunch of high end to them but I just had this conversation this morning so good especially with those uh, those UTA preamps the uh, Eric Valentine ones the gold ones I who's got Oh, JJ has a pair of those. The channels. JJ does. Yeah, it's the uh, Mike Pre EQ. Did the, Stephen Jarvis bring him those? No, but Jarvis had the four channel. He had a pair over Twenty Fifth Street. That's what I was asking. But he also had the last time I was there. He had uh, a four channel micro Mike Pre version of that, which were cool. But I like having the EQ right on the thing, uh, and I found that having the because on those. On the strips, the channel strips, you can uh, 
bypass the transformers. You can make it transformerless. Uh, and the thought process was I didn't want the overheads to sound too thick because the ribbon mics tend to th make things sound thick and warm, but I didn't want them to be so thick. I didn't want them to be transformer thick. I wanted them to be a little more clean. I, w I wanted more of the ribbon mic sound and not anything else in between. But whatever the reason, whatever my reasoning was, it worked out great because they sound so natural uh, and so good, especially with, you know, you got to put like, you know, like on those boxes, like 4 dB of like 10K or something, like you really got to crank the high end. At 25th Street, I used one of their pull techs and it was like, you know, I had the knob up to like 7 at like 8K or something, but it's glorious <laughs> really gorgeous back to uh <clears throat> before we wrap up um on the topic of the you know the vibes that are going on in a session the, the, and the flow of the session and whether it's tense or whether it's happy do you think that there's a correlation between bands that are well rehearsed and prepared oh to session happiness versus Absolutely. bands that are didn't put, do, put their time in and, and rehearse well enough and they come in and the tension arises when it's just not happening because they didn't flush the arrangement out or they didn't flush their part out or... Yeah, all the time. All the time. And, you know, I, I feel like, especially now when people don't have... It happens more when people don't have necessarily a, a, a full-time band or they have to hire people. And the occasion of those people that they hire aren't quite up to it you know i had a session not too long ago with a guy so uh, a guy uh producing who's also the drummer and co-wrote the song and we're sitting there and there's a guitar player and it just didn't like he was really struggling with you know like the bridge it took him like you know 45 minutes to get the chord change on it and i'm jumping out of my skin i'm like this is making me nuts and then I brought it up to him later. He was, to, when I brought it up later to the producer guy, he was like, oh, yeah, that didn't bother me at all. <laughs> but for me, it was like, oh, my God. And we had, you know, another guitar player came in and she totally rocked it. You know, didn't have those same problems at all. But, I mean, not so much. I mean, sometimes the sometimes a, a, an actual band will come in and they'll bump. Most, I mean, most of those, most of those bands will rehearse a lot because they know how much they're paying and they know that, you know, it's a little more important because they're paying so much money for the day that they know that they better rehearse before they get in there. But when they're not rehearsed, it's really, it's difficult. It really is. It's a lot of tension and, and a I lot of like resentment. And I even had bands who were like, you know, the guys doing the guitar overdub. And someone else in the band goes, dude, what chord are you playing there? He's like, oh, so I'm playing an F. It's like, no, I mean, it should be, paying, it should be an E there. <laughs> but because they can't hear themselves when they're rehearsing, the guy didn't even know the right chord progression. So Very frustrating when that happens. And, and when it comes to singer-songwriters that, man, that's I'd say that's my biggest beef is when they hire somebody to come in and play and it was based on a low dollar figure or a favor or just trying to politically please a friend that they may owe a favor to 
the the guys I was re- recording over the past few days, we were analyzing this in detail over lunch. And one of the guitar players, he put it quite brilliantly, I thought. Well, in the, he said in the old days, people were well rehearsed and the engineers didn't have as much to do. He says, I feel like a lot of the bands I run into or encounter, they aren't as well rehearsed. So all the performance falls on the engineer. Oh, my God. Yeah, I've had people more than once joke about how I should get credit for playing the bass. Yeah, no shit. It's it's because like, I'm sitting there cutting up every single note and making the guy sound good or or any instrument, you know, because you just me off. Yeah. I'm kind of as you're telling me you're trying to up your game. I'm kind of like I'm tired of that. Yeah. Just it's, really sick yeah. and tired of it. But yeah, I know what you mean. Um but when it comes to singer songwriters who are like they don't have a regular band and they call me and they say, "Yeah, I want to make a record and I got I, I got a crew of guys." And I'm like, "How long have you been rehearsing with those guys?" And if I get any of the red flags like, "Oh, my buddy's cousin yeah. He just started playing bass, and he's pretty good, but he's normally a guitar player. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> Look, you want to do this right? Call can, this guy. Can, Call can, this guy. Can we? Can I help you Like, get all the people? I'll give you numbers and emails and get you hooked yeah. up because yeah. we want this to be a success, right? That you know, When people ask, people say that to me, I, the first thing I ask, like, who's, who's the drummer? Who's the bass player? Do I know them? Do I have a website? Can I hear stuff that they've done? Because you, know, you never know. Because there are people that I will, you know, if someone says, oh, do you know a drummer? I'm like, well, here's five drummers. They're probably hard to get because <laughs> they're always working. But, you know, or, the, or whoever, bass players, guitar players, you know, there's guys out there who can really nail it and do really well without much rehearsal. Um, better if you rehearse these guys. But, you know, Joe Schmo down the street who just learned to play the drums, who's never played to a click. No, you got to have someone who's who can play to a click. Especially if a, a, a guy is not in your band. Well, Gabe, I appreciate you coming over today. Thank you. This has been, this is cool. We we don't we don't get to talk this much. We've always talked in little spurts over over the years. I know, and, uh, and this has been really great to have you over. Um, so thanks. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you. There you have it, Gabe Shepard on Working Class Audio. Appreciate the interview there, Gabe, and thank you all for listening. Um, and before I go, uh, just a quick thing I'm thinking about doing, and I'd love to hear back from you. So reply to me at matt at workingclassaudio.com. But here's the question. I'm thinking about doing coffee mugs, hoodies, or t-shirts, but I just don't know if anybody really cares or wants them. So if you do, let me know, because that will let me know if I need to put an order in and we'll make some up. All right. See you in two weeks for session 12. Take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.